You're a busy provider trying to stay current with the latest HIV testing, prevention, and treatment guidelines, and your pockets are overflowing with note cards. You need a convenient, trustworthy source for HIV testing, treatment, prevention, and care protocols. All healthcare professionals have a role in stopping HIV. Introducing HIV Care Tools from the AIDS Education and Training Center program. The HIV Care Tools mobile app is simple, free, and fully functional offline or online. It features quick guides for HIV prevention, screening, testing, diagnosis, and treatment. HIV Care Tools provides common clinical calculators used in HIV management and provide validated screening tools for comorbidities such as depression, substance use disorders, and PTSD. And if you need clinician-to-clinician consultation, HIV Care Tools provides one-touch access to free clinical consultation services by a multidisciplinary team of experts. Take us with you. Download HIV Care Tools today. Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Breitman. Today, we're sitting down with John Farragon to talk about the latest COVID-19 updates as we enter spring. Thanks again for being here, John. Yep. Thanks again, Mariana. A lot of changes on COVID already. Uh, it never seems to stop. So we'll see what happens uh, after this one. <laughs> so John, let's just dive right in. What big changes have come about in regards to the COVID-19 pandemic in these past few months? Yeah. So, well, I think it's been a couple months since we've done one of these. So we'll just kind of cover what's new. Um, you know, we've talked a little bit about the drugs, but we haven't talked about the guidelines. So the guidelines, when I talk about them, are the are the NIH COVID guidelines. So if you Google them, they're really good. They're updated on a regular basis. Really, I think, uh, very evidence-based consensus panel kind of stuff. So it's very good. Um, there was a change just in April, um, just this month, early on in the month, and it addressed some of the issues with managing, especially outpatients with, with SARS-CoV-2 infection. So a big change, Marianne, is that the guidelines previously used to recommend um, the anti-SARS-CoV-2 anticlonal antibody citrovimab. So we covered that once before, uh, and that was a treatment option for certain non-hospitalized patients with COVID-19. Although citrovimab is active against this Omicron BA1 and BA1.1 subvariants, it substantially decreased in vitro activity against this the newest um, Omicron variant, which is the BA.2. So the BA2 is really not, the citrovimab is just not effective against BA2. And since this really has now really become the dominant uh, subvariant in the United States, the um, uh, they actually, you know, it's not something that's going to be going to be rec- recommended anymore. So again, this is what's circulating in the U.S. now. And so as a result of the distribution of citrovimab um, has been paused, they actually stopped distributing it, and the NIH guidelines actually no longer recommend using citrovimab. Um, to treat COVID COVID nineteen, um, in a few minutes when I go over the guidelines that are there, we'll talk a little about bevacizumab, but we'll we'll talk about that in a second. Um, the other thing that changed as it comes to monoclonals that that's uh, that's a big change is the use of a drug called um, this is called Evusheld, um, and this is a one of those prophylactic monoclonal antibodies. It's a combination of two drugs. It's uh, tixagevimab and silgavimab. So we've talked about this once before, Evusheld, but now what happened was the dose used to be 150 milligrams, and now the dose is now for adults, it's 300 milligrams of both drugs. So now it's, it has to be doubled what, you, what we did just over a month ago. So remember, this is the medication that's used for SARS-CoV-2 prevention. It's especially good for patients who are maybe not be eligible for the vaccine, 
or for those who may have had a severe reaction to the first dose of vaccine. So again, what do you do with those patients, right? If you only got one dose of Pfizer or you only got, let's say you only got one dose of Janssen and you're supposed to get a booster, what do you do? This is something that will provide roughly about six months of protection uh, for people. So the doses in the EUA for, for, for what I would call COVID prep, prevent, you know, preventive pre-exposure prophylaxis, um, is for pediatric patients over 12 and those that weigh at least 400, or sorry, 40 kilograms, not 400, uh, 40 kilograms. It's uh, ticks plus uh, sill. Uh, it's 300 milligrams uh, of each as two consecutive three ml IM injections. So one of the problems that happened though, Marianne, is that some patients actually got the 150 already. So they already got the 150 when that was the dose. And now there's recommendations that you have to go back and administer a second dose to get them to the full 300, 300 dose that, that you need. So if the initial dose was less than three months ago, that second dose should be 150 plus 150. If it was more than three months ago, then you could just give them the full dose 300 and 300. So again, it's tricky because you got to look at the timing of when they got the last dose and then if they need it, they may need it just, a, <clears throat> excuse me, an extra 150 milligram dose of each. But if it's been over three months, you're probably better off to just redose them with the full with the full 300 300. So again, it's a little tricky, but make sure you make sure you're aware. If you did give somebody Evusheld uh, and you did give them the lower dose, you really have to have them called back. And based on this three month criteria, either give the 150 again of each drug or 300 of each drug, um, depending on that three month marker to to protect them. So again, it's a little complex, but again, it's it just um, you know sometimes things change. But I have to tell you, this was a lot of work. Because you had you had to schedule patients to come in, and um, we actually had to send the drug over to the clinics to make sure people were getting it. And it's you know it wound up being kind of a logistical challenge, but um, you know we're going to have to redo this again for some of these people who only got the lower dose. So, John, what are the current choices and recommendations for non-hospitalized patients based on these NIH guidelines? Yeah, so so the NIH guidelines, as I said, are very good. Um, I'm going to actually take a take the opportunity to kind of just point everybody to a figure. Um, it's figure one in the guidelines. It's very good, and it's basically it's called the therapeutic management of non-hospitalized adults with COVID-19. I'm just going to kind of walk through what the panel recommend recommends. Um, there's basically four different groups of patients. One of them is the first one I'll cover is those that do not require hospitalization or supplemental oxygen. These are people, they're home, they get tested, they may even do a home test, they might not even get a PCR, but their home test comes back positive. They're a little worried, they call the provider, what, what can the provider do? So the patient really should be offered offer, offer symptomatic management. So for those who are at high risk of progression, the list of, of therapies in, in this order um, or preferred, there's two of them. It's Vertonavir-boosted uh, near Maxlovir. So that's Paxlovid. We've talked a lot about that. I won't spend much more time on that. And also Remdesivir, which is actually the, the three-day Remdesivir. Notice that in hospitalized patients, we do five days, but it's a three-day recommendation for, for unhospitalized patients. And then the alternative therapies are these things that we should only do when neither of the other two, uh, other two preferred therapies, Remdesivir and Paxlovid are, are unavailable. So if they're not around, not feasible clinically or appropriate, you could either do Bebtilevimab or Molnupiravir. Those are two different drugs. Beb is actually the new monoclonal, which I'll cover in a second in some more, a little bit more detail. And Molnupiravir is the drug that's been around for, for a little bit. We've covered that as well. The panel also recommends against using steroids. So no Decadron or other systemic uh, uh, corticosteroids, unless there's another, another reason to do it. So 
another another group of patients that so that's that's the that's the patients who don't require oxygen or hot or supplemental oxygen. So what about if you're discharged in the hospital uh, inpatient setting and you're in stable condition and you don't require supplemental oxygen? So let's say you've been discharged. This is a common thing, right? So the panel recommends against continuing remdesivir, decadron, baricitinib after hospital discharge. So if you're going to discharge them and they're ready to walk out of the hospital and they're doing okay to be discharged, they, they recommend stopping off all therapeutic uh, treatment for, for, um, for COVID. Now, obviously, if somebody has symptoms still later on and they, you know a couple of days later and have to be readmitted, it's kind of a whole other topic. But for the most part, hopefully you're discharging people at the right, at the right time. And if you are, most of the, their therapies can basically be, be discontinued. Um, and again, I think the other thing is even, even continuing um, uh, Decadron or Remdesivir, again, the same thing. If they're discharged in the hospital and they're doing well, um, they, they shouldn't be uh, continued on Decadron or, or, or Remdesivir. And we get this question a lot because patients will say, you know, should I continue taking the steroid when I get home? And, you know, if they're out of the hospital, they technically probably don't need it because they're probably, they're probably doing fine from a discharge standpoint. So probably they don't have any, any oxygenation issues. And then there's, the, uh, there's, there's another uh, fourth category, which is patients who were discharged from the emergency department despite new or increasing need for supplemental oxygen. So let's say your hospital resources are limited and you don't have enough um, room to admit the patient. And sometimes this does happen in some areas. And you're thinking, well, maybe I can manage them at home. So what they recommend here is that if you have an increasing need for supplemental oxygen, that's where really the steroids make a big difference. And the panel does recommend using a decadron dose of six milligrams once a day for the duration of the supplemental oxygen that's used. But really decadron should not be exceeding more than more than 10 days based on some of the data that we have um, so, so far. Since remdesivir is recommended for patients with similar oxygen needs um, when they're hospitalized, clinicians may consider using it in this setting. And as you know, if you did this, you'd have to do IV infusions for up to five consecutive days. And that may be logistically you know, difficult you know, because you have to administer remdesivir in the outpatient setting. Now, having said that, a lot of places are able to do the three-day remdesivir, which is kind of in that first category that I talked about. So it might not be that hard to do. And right now, with the limitations in, in some of the monoclonal antibodies, and there's not a lot of bevtilevimab around, you know, there are, you know, where that's usually being done in some of the infusion centers, you may actually have room in the infusion center to actually do remdesivir for, for some of your patients. So well, it depends on your setting, where you are, what your resources are, but the bottom line, the, the the, the two preferred drugs, which is the most important thing, you know, if you are, if you're not requiring um, hospitalization or supplemental oxygen, it really is Paxlovid, which is that ritonavir boosted, your matrilvir or remdesivir. And again, and that's in that order of preference, first the, the Paxlovid, then the remdesivir. Um, in New York State, there is a website, uh, I have not looked at it, but there is a website that you can go to that actually, if you, if you Google this, um, it has like the COVID-19 availability, drugs, drug availability uh, in different pharmacies. It'll tell you who has the medications and stuff. So it's helpful for providers to take a look at that before you go writing a script that's some, to somewhere that's not going to actually ha have the medication that does help. Um, because we're talking about Paxlovid, again, a reminder again, careful of drug interactions. We've covered it in previous podcasts. I encourage you to go back and listen. But also another thing that's important about Paxlovid that sometimes people forget is that there are some renal and hepatic dosing recommendations as well. So for GFR greater than 60, that's a normal creatinine clearance. So if you're, what's the, how your kidneys are functioning, um, the standard dose three, um, 300, 100, twice a day for five days. If your creatinine clearance falls between 30 and 60, 
you actually have to take one of the nermatilvir tablets out and not take it. So nermatilvir comes in a, in a packet that has 150 milligrams. It comes with two pills twice a day, right? So you get basically 10 of these packs. I think that's how it works. So basically, instead of taking two twice a day, you'd only take one of them with a ritonavir uh, twice a day for five days. So you cut the nermatilvir dose in half. So you only take one of those pills <clears throat> of the nermatilvir instead of two, but you, you take the full return of your dose while, you, while you're doing it. Less than 30, it's not recommended. And then also in severe hepatic impairment, child's two class C, it's also not recommended. So just some things to think about. There are some creatinine clearance cutoffs for remdesivir as well, because of the there's a cyclodextrin carrier that's involved with, with the drug. Um, if you're less than 30, maybe you probably shouldn't use it there. We have used it in that setting and we've, we've have not had major issues or toxicity, but again, when you're out there, make sure you're following the label. And if you're doing something off label, be really careful with the EUAs, especially for outpatients um, and, you know, that aren't going to be monitored all the time, making sure that you're, that you're doing, doing the right thing. But we, um, we have used this in patients with credit clearances less than 30 and felt comfortable doing that. So that's, that's, that's actually a good thing to know. So that's kind of the story with the, with the, with some of the major guideline changes that, that are, that are there. Can you share a little more information about bebtilovimab? Is this is really the only monoclonal antibody that's authorized right now? Is that correct? Yeah. So before this, uh, Marianne, with Omicron, we had sotrovimab, but now with these with the BA two variant, it's just you know there is some efficacy, but it's just not enough from the from the recommended. And you know uh, the the um, the bebtilovimab is, is is a better drug. It's not great, but it's better than than what we have with sotrovimab. So right now, it is the only thing that's authorized. So to review, uh, people weighing uh, at least forty kilograms and at least twelve years of age, the FDA recommends the bebtilovimab. 170 milligrams as an IV injection over 30 seconds. Now that's nice, but it's a quick injection. However, you can have side effects, right? You can have nausea, itching, vomiting, rash, and there are some rare hypersensitivity reactions that occur uh, that also include some infusion reactions and even anaphylaxis. So patients really have to be monitored for at least an hour after the injection is completed. So it's not going to free up your time in the, uh, in the infusion center. The difference here is that the, the number of doses of beptilovimab that are available, at least today in, in April, is, uh, is, is limited. So I think that's one of the things that's kind of kept the infusion centers a little bit open um, uh, open for now. The big question is the next variant, you know, which monoclonal antibody will work, which one won't. I think those are the big questions that I think that are still out there. And again, I say this all the time, and I think uh, some of the some of the physicians that I work with that, that do... Um, COVID-19 presentations in particular, I know Dr. Gillespie says this, we are, you know, no one's predicting the future. I can't predict it. I mean, we hear a lot about it on the news. Everybody thinks they know what's going to happen next week and you really don't. And everything, everything changes. Um, uh, just today in, in, in where I am in, in upstate New York, our, our, our rates are over 10% in Rensselaer and Albany County. They're recommending indoor mask use again, which, you know, again, I don't know if everybody's going to follow that, but again, that's something that was kind of, you know, um, not, we haven't been doing for, for the last probably, you know, three or four months or so. So again, things change on a regular basis. You really gotta, you really gotta keep up on it. And I think there's less, less press too, less, less um, uh, lay press media uh, on COVID too. And I think that's, this can be good and bad. I think sometimes we don't really hear about a lot of the variants that are actually happening or things that, that are, that are of concern. So as we begin to wrap up, what else do providers need to know at this point? 
Yeah. So I think in summary, I think there's a couple of things. I think the mask mandate from TSA has been lifted. I think many of us are aware of that just in the last couple of weeks, um, not without controversy, not without lawsuits. Right. I don't know if that's going to stay in effect. Um, you know, there's some court filings going on I, back and forth. I have no idea where that stands, but as it stands right now, TSA is not mandating that people wear masks. So that's, you know, if you can look at that as a good or a bad thing. Now there are talks about how often the air is cycled in airplanes and it's probably one of the cleaner environments, but Still, I think a lot of people who are going on planes are probably going to wear wear a mask. I know when I went the last couple of weeks, the, the last man, the mask mandate was still in place, and you know I double masked. Um, but I think that people are getting less sick from from SARS-CoV-2, at least with Omicron, and even this Omicron BA2 variant. It appears that that's similar, where it appears to be contagious, but again the the symptoms don't seem to be as bad, you know, and it's not causing hospitalizations. And and if you look at hospitalizations, like even at seven and fourteen days. Those numbers are not going up with the, you know, at the same rate that that infections are that we saw with other with other earlier earlier variants. So that's actually good. Again, not to imply predictions of the future by any means, but again, this is just the reality. Um, CDC also, if you go to the CDC website and search COVID, there's a map of green, yellow, and orange for like a low, medium, and high risk. And you can actually go in and, and search by state and county to see what's happening in your area. So punch your, your zip code in and it'll actually tell you what's up. Um, I just did this. And again, again, this is late April. My county, you know, is orange for high, meaning that it's, you know, you should wear a mask indoors. And those changes did occur just recently. I think most importantly, again, stay up, up to date with vaccines, get tested if you have symptoms. Um, and if you're high risk for severe illness, make sure you take additional precautions that you might not always do all the time. But if you have you know, severe illness or you have or immunocompromised, making sure you're do, doing that. But the vaccines, boosters, and even, you know, right now, so we've got, there was one booster recommended now for those over 50. There's a second booster recommended, you know, if you're high risk, make sure that you're, that you're doing the right thing. For medium risk, you know, they say basically to talk to your health healthcare provider if you're high risk to discuss mask use and get vaccinated and get tested with symptoms. Low risk, which is green, vaccinate, just get tested with symptoms if you have any, if you have any issues. But other than that, I think, um, you know, things have been pretty stable from, from a COVID uh, perspective. The numbers appear to be going up, but hopefully we won't see the number of hospitalizations that we saw, you know, a few, uh, you know, uh, even last year with, um, with, with some of these, with some of these variants. Um, but, you know, we're not sure um, this will help to decide uh, the screen, yellow, orange um, for each person's, but at least it, you have the ability to search in your area to, to, to see what's happening. So really guideline changes, right? NIH guidelines, take a look. Um, that figure one, I think, is really helpful for outpatient management. There's some websites that you can go to that will help you to kind of determine if you have meds in your area. And I think, uh, you know, I think the the rates of infection and all of this is kind of in flux about how to manage mask use or not use a mask indoors, uh, I think, is all is all going to be in flux over the next couple of weeks and next probably the next couple months as well as we move into the early summer. John, thanks so much for joining us and giving us all of the most up-to-date information as of now on this ever-changing COVID-19 pandemic. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika AETC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nikaaetc.org. That's www.nikaaetc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaaetc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at nikaaetc.org. Stay safe, and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know.
presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.